This is Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. And in this episode, I want to talk a little bit about a passage from the book of Exodus as the people of Israel were starting the journey of leaving Egypt. And if you remember the story, you know that for hundreds of years, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and they were used for building projects and hard labor and they cried out to God. And the book of Exodus kind of begins with this story of telling about how God heard the people of Israel and how he did something about it. And so Moses, who uh, you might remember, grew up in Egypt as kind of as an Egyptian. He grew up in Pharaoh's daughter's household. And then uh, when he realized that he was not Egyptian, but that he was uh, an Israelite, he became frustrated with the way that his people were being mistreated. And he fought against uh, an Egyptian like slave master guard kind of guy. And he killed him in this fight. And so because of that, Moses went into um, kind of hiding, kind of exile and living in the wilderness where, you know, this famous moment of him interacting with God and meeting him in a burning bush. And all of that takes place. God tells Moses, I need you to go back to Egypt because I've heard the cries of my people because they're suffering and because I'm going to do something about it and you're going to be involved. Now, Moses was hesitant, kind of resistant, because he, that wasn't his comfort zone. He's like, hey, I'm not a good speaker. That's not my sweet spot. I don't think this is, you know, basically, I don't think you have the right guy. And God walks with him and shows, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what you need to say. And eventually, with some prodding and after some more conversation, Moses goes back to Egypt. And uh, the stories of the plagues, as Moses said, hey, Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh saying no over and over and over as he and the people of Egypt suffer through um, some pretty serious, I almost said inconveniences, but that's definitely not the right word, some pretty serious ailments and some pretty serious loss of uh, wealth and property and really hitting them where it hurts. You know, the bottom line and their health and ultimately the death of the firstborn uh, of all of the children of the Egyptians. And so finally, the Egyptians just say, hey, you got to get out of here. You have brought us nothing over the past little time frame here, but suffering and pain. And if letting you go and saying, 
hey, your God is more powerful than our gods and we just need to get you out of here. If that's the answer, then okay, let's just do it. And I want to read, I'm going to kind of read a little bit of the story here and then skip through a little bit and kind of give you the highlights. And I want to read some passages throughout Exodus 13 and 14 that describe what, I guess, what life was like, what general sentiment was like among the people of Israel and what the beginning of this Exodus looked like. So this is Exodus chapter 13, verse starting in verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Now, I don't know if anything right in there struck you the same way that it struck me, but I found it really interesting to end that couple verses on this line. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Because we're kind of getting set up here for what's coming ahead to know that expectations are not going to be met exactly the way that people are picturing them. And I don't know if that stands out to me so much because um, I've had some moments where I had certain expectations of God and he did his thing, but he did his thing in a way that I wouldn't have pictured. He did his thing in a way that I mean, sometimes I would describe as not doing his thing in the first place, right? (laughs) And I think it's really instructive, informative, interesting, and I think it's important for us to notice that right at the outset of this journey, God has just freed his people through miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. And we're set up right now for disappointment because God says, I know that if they go through this way, the way they're picturing, if they go right into war, which is what they have in their minds, they might change their mind and go right back to Egypt. And that sounds insane, doesn't it? To go, wait, what? People would potentially go right back into this place where for hundreds of years they have been forced into hard labor and enslaved. That doesn't even make any sense. But God knows us. And if we're honest, if we think about some parallels in our own lives, We're not going back into actual Egypt, actual enslavement, but we do sometimes go back into metaphorical Egypt, metaphorical 
enslavement, when we go back to those same destructive habits and addictions that we know we've tried them before, we're trying to achieve, you know, joy or freedom or success or whatever it is that we're chasing in those moments with these things that we've tried and we know they don't work. And God brought us out of that and offered us this fresh start. And we still find ourselves when God doesn't work exactly how we want him to, when he doesn't do exactly the thing that we're picturing, um, we find ourselves kind of like I talked about recently in the Job episode where when it feels like things are going bad and just life doesn't feel fair, we really struggle to remain faithful because we think, well, if I'm not getting any kind of benefit from being obedient and sacrificing and giving up some of the things I already naturally want to do, if I'm not getting any benefit from it, I'm just going to go back to that. Yeah, I know it didn't really bring fulfillment. It didn't bring peace. It actually brought hurt and destruction to me and the people around me. But I kind of know that area. I'm more comfortable functioning there. Even though it's dysfunctional, I'm I'm kind of at ease in the midst of dysfunction. And then... A few verses later, um, we're told in verse 21, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of night of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So, again, this is just this idea that's building, 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 that God is showing up, that God is moving, that God is doing miracle after miracle after miracle to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. And the story goes ultimately into the promised land. Now, maybe you know the rest of the story that through disobedience and lack of trust, this journey doesn't go anything close to in a straight line from Egypt to the promised land. But that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves here because I want to look at what happened right in the moment when Israel leaves Egypt. So they're um, out in this spot. They're following after, like we just read, in the day a pillar of cloud and in night a pillar of fire. So during the day you can obviously see the clouds and during the night you can obviously see the fire. And what God is doing here is he's making it really clear, really obvious, where they need to go from there. And so he's leading them on this journey. And uh, 
what happens is he leads them to kind of a place where you wouldn't naturally go. This is starting the next chapter, chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hariath between Migdal and the sea. They're to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And what God said would happen right there is exactly what happened. Pharaoh, they looked, you know, scout, not Pharaoh, but his scouts, they saw what was happening as the Israelites were kind of seemingly just headed toward nowhere. They were encamping, as the verse said, by the sea. And Pharaoh looks and goes, okay, wait a sec. We had a bunch of free slave labor, and we just gave that up. Um, I'm, I'm looking, I'm trying to think. I think, if I remember right, 600,000 was the number of just the men in the Israelite camp that left. Um, I'm, I'm scanning this page and reading through the verses and I'm not seeing it right now. I'm pretty sure that was the number if I remember right. But a ton, a ton of people. And so Pharaoh and his officials, they get together. And it's funny in the story here, they say, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. And so they decide to take off after him. And as Pharaoh approached, this is verse 10 of chapter 14, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Now, I want to more focus on this part of the story. I, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story or don't know what happens next, I'll tell you the rest of the story so that I don't leave you hanging because I have kind of a bad habit sometimes of doing that. Um, God showed up and God used Moses, his chosen leader, his mouthpiece to the people of Israel um, to allow the people of Israel to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. The water bunched up on either side and the Israelites, their whole crew of people, uh, if I'm remembering it right, 600,000 men plus whatever women and children would have been 
along with that many men. So a lot, a lot, a lot of people crossed the Red Sea and then the water came back together. And the Egyptians who had followed them into the riverbed, they didn't survive. And God showed up again in bringing freedom. I mean, that's why the book of the, the book of Exodus, that's why it's called Exodus, right? Because this is what the story is. It's about God's ultimate redemption, the bringing out of slavery, of, if you know kind of the older word for it, of bondage. I think that might be the King James way that it's talked about. But this idea that God is bringing freedom, it, in many ways, it it kind of foretells or paints a picture before we see God's ultimate redemptive act in Jesus, bringing total freedom, not from the slavery of Egypt, but from the slavery of sin and death. And I'm, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself and uh, jumping into some things I wasn't planning on talking about, but all of these things are tied into this story. But like I said, I want to focus in on the attitude of the Israelite people saying, hey, were there not graves in Egypt? I mean, is that why we came out here? This is a better place for all of us to die. Didn't we tell you in Egypt, just leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. And, you know, I I think I've talked about this a little bit before in the past that it can be really easy to see what the Israelites do and say and what they complain about moments after God does something amazing in their story and go, oh man, those Israelites are, that's crazy. How could you miss that? How could you complain about that after what God had just done? And then I think a little bit about my own story. I think about how I, um, I don't really live with gratitude for very long. And maybe you do. But my guess is that many of us struggle with this same thing. That we watch when God does something, when God shows up, and it might be a big thing that we've been praying for for decades, and it might be a little thing that we just kind of are reminded, oh yeah, God is involved. God does care. God is interested in what's going on in my life. And we can just so quickly, so easily move past that and move right back into complaining, being frustrated and looking at the next challenge ahead and going, "Ah, how's this going to get solved? Come on, there's no way this is going to happen. And start like the Israelites. Hey, I mean, did God and you bring us out here to die in the wilderness because that's better than dying in Egypt? Come on, this is crazy. 
Now, maybe we don't say it that directly. Maybe we just think it. Um, But I really do believe that we find ourselves in moments where the appropriate response would be gratitude, would be trust that if God has done this, 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 you know what, next time I run up into something really tough, I'm going to trust him. That's what would be the appropriate response. But I think so many of us, like me, find ourselves looking a whole lot more like the Israelites in those moments. And, you know, I'm sitting here in the studio and I'm thinking, okay, how could I really continue talking about this? And I'm, I'm realizing that I think you get it. I think I don't need to uh, spend a whole lot of time breaking down, okay, and here's how we do this. Here's what this looks like. Because we know, don't we? We know when we see what should be gratitude in us turning to complaining or, um, again, this is, a, I think, a King James version. This is what I... Uh, learned these stories at a small Christian school that we read the King James. I think murmuring was the King James word that was used for this uh, complaining and grumbling, murmuring. We know what it looks like when we're, instead of living with gratitude and trust, and faithfulness uh, to be living with grumbling and complaining and murmuring. And what I want to invite all of us to do is to take a look at where have I had a completely inappropriate response? Where have I, after watching what God has done, Uh, Where have I kind of gone back to my old ways? Where have I started doubting him before he's even had a chance to do whatever he would do? Um, Because I think that this isn't just an Israel problem in the Old Testament. This isn't just an Allen problem. This isn't everybody, everywhere problem. That as soon as we run into something tough, our first reaction is, you know, and maybe we can couch it in legitimate terms and say, well, no, I'm concerned and I'm trying to be a planner and I'm trying to be responsible. Um, But we can quickly turn instead of moments where we should be trusting and relying and grateful. We turn into anxiety, complaining, murmuring, grumbling. And I want to ask you to join with me in taking a look at where in life, where in my life, where in your life, um, have you seen God do some 
amazing things. You know, I was, I was kind of getting, like I said earlier, getting ahead of myself and talking about, you know, the Exodus kind of foreshadows what God ultimately did for all humanity, um, making a way through Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, making a way where we could all be made right with God, where we can all be brought out of slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin, to death. And with that in mind, how we are anything other than grateful, anything other than overwhelmed by God's love, but we easily do turn it into grumbling and complaining and questioning and Hey, how come things aren't working out like I thought they were going to work out? So like Israel, where our expectations aren't met, where we're prepared for one thing and then something else happens and we're tempted to, you know, in some ways kind of yell at God, question, hey, God, you don't even know what you're doing. I want to encourage all of us, instead of grumbling and complaining, to choose gratitude, to choose faithfulness, and to choose trust.